This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su-An. Talking to kids about sex and sexuality is often a highly controversial and sensitive topic, but comprehensive sexual education really shouldn't be, as information and often the wrong information becomes more accessible to children and teenagers who are online. How can parents and teachers ensure that young people understand what sexual health is? What kind of questions do they usually have? So joining me on the show today is Dr. Melissa Khan. She's an associate professor in the specialty of general practice at the University of Sydney in Australia. She also has a special interest in adolescent and young adult health and sexual health. Um, she's also co-authored several books targeted at young people to help them understand their bodies and their sexual health. So we'll be finding out more about that from her as well. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a, it's a pleasure on my end as well. Now, I want to find out about uh, a bit more about you first before we go into this topic of um, sex education and sexual health for teenagers. Now, I understand that you trained as a primary care physician um, and you have a particular interest in adolescent sexuality and adolescent health. Um, maybe talk to me about that, right? How did you come to be interested in this area? Was this something that you saw yourself venturing in when you started medical school? Uh, not at all. So I entered medicine as a very young, naive 17-year-old, actually, and I was very ambivalent. I wasn't even sure that I wanted to study medicine, mm. but I knew I had an interest in working with people. My first career idea, in fact, for many years during high school was to be a teacher. Oh, wow. That was what I was interested in. And maybe my my late mother would say I just like bossing people around. I'm not sure. But anyway, I, I decided to pursue medicine thinking that maybe I'd be interested in psych psychiatry, psychology, you know, understanding the way the mind works. And what happened was during the course of my studies, there was a brand new specialty in Sydney called adolescent medicine. In fact, there were two specialists. There were pediatricians who studied adolescent medicine and I had a lecture from one of them during one of my classes. And I thought, this looks really interesting. Now, it's possible that I was still an adolescent myself, you know, and I thought, this sounds really interesting. So I pursued that idea. And they were the main pathway to that career was through pediatrics. So I mm. did embark on pediatric training. But due to starting my family quite young and not being able to train part time, I fell into general practice and I've never looked back. I really love the holistic nature of primary care, the preventative nature of primary care. It actually fits very well with adolescent medicine. And I just feel I have been blessed in my jobs and my career opportunities because although I have trained as a general practitioner, in other words, seeing people from birth to death, mm -hmm. and I did a few years working in general practice, I actually then moved completely into working in adolescent medicine or youth health. So adolescent medicine is more of a hospital-based specialty, but I was actually, I had a job in the hospital for 10 years working with adolescents and their families. That was going back uh, almost 20 years now. And since that time, I work in a youth health clinic, which is a primary preventive health care for homeless young people. Mm. And I do a range of 
mainly preventative health and assessment kinds of work there. But for the last uh, almost 20 years, I've predominantly been an academic. So I do still do some clinical work as a primary care physician, only with young people, no one younger than 12, no one <laughs> older than 24. And I mostly work doing research. And, you know, I came back to being a teacher after all. So I mm -hmm. teach uh, general practice a little bit and, and adolescent medicine a little bit at the university. Mm. What do you think makes adolescent or youth health so unique? Because you're looking at this this age range of 12 to 18, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those, you're not quite children, you're not quite adults. Exactly. And I think that this is often what sparks controversy, you know, mm. because... I've mentioned to you that my father is from Malaysia, I'm half Chinese, and certainly when I visited Malaysia as a medical student and said, I'm really interested in adolescent health, it was like, what, what's that, you mm. know? And even in parts of Australia and, and, and many other Western countries, adolescents, certainly adolescents are recognised more and adolescent health is much more recognised as an important population to really try and intervene early. Mm -hmm. However, they are still legally children. So they're in that kind of period of their life where they're rapidly growing physically, rapidly developing higher abstract thinking and, and intellectual and cognitive abilities. So the law in Australia recognises this legally and says, well, there's a certain point in, in time or over a period of these years where they can actually begin to understand and make decisions about their own health care. Mm. And for that reason, they should be afforded some autonomy in their decision making. So that's what makes them unique. Some of them are still, you know, there's a huge variability in terms of maturity and development. But it's, for me, absolutely lovely to watch adolescents grow into young adults. It's a very idealistic time of life. It's also a difficult, as a, as a doctor, it's a difficult age to engage with you know communication is so important in a in a doctor patient relationship so really having the skills and the patience i think to listen to what young people have to say if you're open and non-judgmental they will really open up to you it is difficult though a lot of health professionals find this age group challenging because 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 of communication mm. and I think, but that's what I love about it. I love mm. that challenge, actually. Mm. Speaking of communication, now the topic that you have a special interest in is, is sexual health. Now, that is an even more difficult topic for a lot of people, adults and teenagers alike, yeah. to talk about. Um, what are some of the common questions or, I guess, categories of questions that you often hear from young people on this issue? You know, how much do they know or how much do they want to know? Yeah, Look, it's really interesting that I have also had the privilege in my career to write a column for a magazine, an mm. Australian teenage girls magazine. And the questions that would be sent to the magazine are very different to the questions I get asked as a doctor in mm. my clinic. And this is why I feel I've been so lucky to have this much broader and deeper insight into what really young people want to know, adolescents want to know. So in my clinical role and perhaps in research studies as well, an adolescent would come with a question about, let's say, puberty periods, um, changes going on uh, in their bodies, development. 
if they're at an age where they're starting to become interested in intimacy, romance, and even sex, then they might come to me as a doctor really to ask about things like contraception or how to prevent a sexually transmitted infection. So that's what I would see in my clinic. In the magazine world, and if you talk to adolescents and young people away from a clinical setting and environment, they have a lot more questions really about relationships, communication, pleasure, how sex works, you know, what it actually is and how, what are certain things that they hear about in uh, the playground or mm. on social media, especially and online, a lot of, a lot of inappropriate content out there and they hear about it. So mm. they're curious about what this is. So I think what I have learned from this many, many years of, of answering these questions or reading these questions is that there is a whole universe of information that adolescents are naturally curious about and they are quite comfortable asking an anonymous doctor through a magazine channel uh you know, the questions that they have. And my concern now in the digital age with so much information and content out there is magazines have, you know, died. Like the magazine I wrote for closed down many years ago now because mm. there was no longer selling everything young people want to know. They look up online. Mm. My concern is if they write these questions to the internet, they're going to get a whole lot of very inappropriate sites that they're taken to. So I feel like the... There's some fantastic information on the internet, obviously, and, and if we could direct young people to these appropriate authoritative sites, that's great, but we can't necessarily control that. So I feel there's even more urgency now to make sure that we are giving adolescents the information that we know from the bulk of the things we see and, and research has shown us that they're going to be curious about. Hmm. From your perspective, um, you know, from from the various um, work that you've done as a clinician, as an acad academic, as a teacher, why is it important that we don't deny young people this kind of information? Why is it important that they understand? Um, why is it important that they have sex, uh, comprehensive mm -hmm. sexuality yeah. education? Yeah. Look, I think we now have 30 plus years of research that shows the benefits of comprehensive sex education. So the first thing to say is that comprehensive sexuality education or CSE is comprehensive. Mm -hmm. So there are definitions of it um, which talk about not only the content, you know, facts that they can learn, but in fact having supportive policies in the school environment, non-discriminatory policies, having staff on board who uh, look after student welfare. It's also about giving students information and skills about where else they can go for help, how to talk to their parents, how to talk to a health professional. So life skills and knowing where the help is if they really get into trouble. So that's what we mean by comprehensive. It's also about supporting teachers, mm. making sure that the, the teachers and the school principals also have the support that they need. So that's what we mean by CSE. It's not just the lessons they get in class. So the research that's looked at CSE in total has, has demonstrated that, if anything, it delays the onset of sexual activity. Mm. If anything, it has a protective. It doesn't, it has it does the opposite to what I think a lot of adults and parents worry about 
which is, oh, if you talk about sex, they want to go to, want to go and go and have it. The evidence shows us the reverse. It also shows a reduction in unplanned pregnancy, a reduction in sexually transmitted infection rates. So these are hard outcomes that we can show. The other thing that's become of real interest of late in Australia uh, is reduction in violence, sexual assault and sexual harassment. So that is another really important area. We we have had a real campaign in our country for the last couple of years, often led by some young people around consent and consent education. Mm -hmm. And again, um, there has been some research that's shown that CSE will re will reduce um, non-consensual or, you know, sexual assault essentially or unwanted um, sex. And then the other area that has been researched is around inclusivity and respect for diversity. And there's certainly been evidence to show that where CSE is inclusive and acknowledges and, you know, we must respect all people um, based on whether it's their ethnic, cultural identity, their sexual identity, their gender identity, showing respect for all um, and that being the, the sort of underpinning principle of CSE does also reduce harm violence, discrimination and poor mental health that we see in some of our young people who are not, uh, you know, who are sexuality diverse. So there's really, really good evidence. And it's not just in countries like Western countries, it's it's in many countries. The World Health Organization, um, UNESCO have reports that are readily available on the internet that will take people through exactly what the, the research has shown us. All right, we do have to go for a quick break, but we'll continue this discussion when we come back. On the show with me today is Dr. Melissa Kang, Associate Professor in the Specialty of General Practice at the University of Sydney. We'll be right back after a quick break, so keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on The Bigger Picture with me, Lim Soo An. Today, we are talking about the importance of comprehensive sexual education. And um, joining me for today's topic is Dr. Melissa Kang. She's an Associate Professor in the Specialty of General Practice at the University of Sydney with a special interest in adolescent and young adult sexual health. She's also co-authored several books targeted at young people within this age group to help them better understand their bodies, to help them better understand sexual sexual health and their sexuality. Um, to what extent are CSE programs um, taught in Australia? Because I'm just coming at it from a Malaysian perspective, right? It's something that activists and advocates here, um, women's rights groups and youth rights groups in particular, have really been pushing for. But we've often met with that that backlash that you've mentioned, right? That yeah. parents think that, okay, this is going to encourage them. Um, what's it like in Australia? It's actually also pretty conservative in not just my opinion, but mm. many of my colleagues who work in this field, that as a country we seem progressive mm -hmm. and, and in many ways we are, but when it comes to adolescents who are technically still children by law, that it's seen as somehow sexualizing them too young or planting the seeds for behaviours and activities that they're not ready for, mm -hmm. that it will encourage them to want to go and have uh, sex when they're not ready for it. So it's a common myth that is, I think, I don't know if it's as prevalent here as in Malaysia, but it's pretty prevalent. There, there is a lot of resistance in the community 
to comprehensive sexuality education. I think on in general, our parent communities are very supportive of schools delivering sex education. They believe that is the right place. Mm-hmm. There's less support for, for example, some aspects of curriculum like inclusivity and diversity mm-hmm. or like talking about pleasure and why adolescents, young people and older people, the motivations for having sex are, you know, a range of things, including mm. pleasure. And that is the that is a common question that adolescents ask about pleasure or not pleasure or, you know, why why do I not experience pleasure or how do I experience more pleasure? It is I think we have to acknowledge as human beings it's a it's a common motivation for adults to enjoy and engage in sexual activity and therefore it is also going to be true for young adults and younger people to become curious. So, But there is some resistance about that. Oh, if we tell our children that it's a pleasurable thing, that it's going to make them want to go and do it. The evidence again shows that that's not the case if they're given really, because I think intuitively a young person you know, knows that it's, they don't quite know when they're ready. Mm. That's a common question too. I don't know how to tell if I'm ready. If you don't know, then you're not ready. I mean, that's the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are the sorts of things you need to think about. Mm. Mm. Does that sort of resistance to talk about it among adults in the community also contribute to that stigma of young people wanting to ask? Because you spoke about how when they get to write in anonymously, Mm. they ask very different questions. That's right. Young people I've spoken to in research, so not in my clinic because Mm -hmm. obviously I'm there to address a clinical issue, but in research, not just my research, many people's research has demonstrated to us that young people, and I'm talking even young people in their 20s, even their mid-20s, and this is true for young men as well as young women, but especially so for if you're female Mm -hmm. or if you're... um, not heterosexual as well, but particularly young women will say to me and have said to me and others that they feel a sense of stigma and shame for being a young woman who is engaging in sex or interested in sex or interested in finding out about sex. There is a shame associated with uh, what I basically classify as female sexuality in general. And so that immediately makes it difficult for a young woman or an adolescent woman to mm-hmm. approach anybody really to talk about it, except their peers, you know, that might be acceptable with their peers, but not with adults where they really, you know, that's a good place to go for, for good information, including, and I like to reassure parents about this, if your values, your cultural beliefs, your religious beliefs are such that these, you know, these are your attitudes um, about sex, then it's very likely your children growing up with those values will adopt those values as Mm. well. Um, I think that there's a fear that, you know, I have certain personal or religious beliefs and if I then let my child hear about sex, it's going to corrupt them. Again, that's not being demonstrated. In fact, children growing up, uh, with particular cultural or religious beliefs and values are likely to adopt those as well. Mm-hmm. Not everybody will, and there might even be a period of rebellion, but on the whole, 
we are like who we came from, you know. So I think I like to reassure parents about that, that information and knowledge is more empowering, in fact, than keeping silent. Silence equals shame, equals stigma, equals I won't talk about it. Therefore, if I do this, if I meet someone and I want to do this or I just, even if I do it by myself, um, I'm just going to feel really ashamed. And in the end, we want our children to be healthy adults in healthy relationships. Mm. Um, And uh, so I think having a positive attitude to sexuality is a very innate human thing, is a better thing in the long run for our children as they grow up. I think we often talk about um, navigating cultural, even religious sensitivities when it comes to sexual health and sexuality of young people. Um, The discussions sometimes make it sound like it's a zero-sum game, but it's not necessarily, right? There is a balance to be found. Exactly, exactly. And I think, um, and I have many examples of this in my life, my personal life, Mm -hmm. my my monks, you know, my social network, but also with the the patients or the young people I talk to in my job, um, where sure, you know, the 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 belief is that you don't have sex before marriage or you don't um, do this or do that, and and you can hold that belief and and impart that to your children whilst also saying, here are some facts about contraception. Here are some facts about pleasure. Mm. Um, Those two things can coexist. They're not contradictory, you know. Um, I think what I also say, though, is that the individual, in the end, being able to be comfortable with your own sexuality is a human right. Mm. And if that clashes too much with the family or the community around you, that's where I, you know, that's where we worry. That's when that's when mental health and even sexual health can be really negatively impacted. So, you know, um, again, evidence shows us that young people who go, you know, they go through puberty, they start to become interested or understand these physical changes, these sensations happening in their body, that often creates a crisis and a whole lot of anxiety. And the research shows us that there is more unplanned pregnancy. There are more um, higher STI rates. And so, you know, I think we want to see a change in that as well, you know, to to live, to go through that sort of terrible crisis um, rather than having people to talk to who are open about, you know, let's explore this um, is also really important. Hmm. You've, um, Melissa, I know you've also co-authored a series of books. That's another part of your career. You've co-authored um, these books with Yumi Steins called Welcome To, and these explore topics like um, consent, breasts, periods, and most recently sex as well. Um, what? And you spoke a lot about finding ways to talk about these things to children. What sparked this idea to write books about this targeted at young people? And what impact have you seen on, ad, on adults trying to broach these subjects with their children? Yeah, I. so it was serendipity from my point of view. So Yumi Steins is a podcaster, a media personality, a broadcaster who... Met, I met because she invited me as a guest onto her podcast a few years ago. And she had grown up in Australia reading the magazine that I used to write for, although I do believe 
it was before my time that she was a <laughs> consumer of the magazine. Um, nevertheless, I grew up with it too. You know, mm. it's been around a long time, the magazine. So I also grew up reading this magazine. Anyway, she was excited and um, at, at the idea that perhaps with her media background and her ability to translate information to an audience and my medical background and mm. my involvement in answering these questions that maybe we could write something together. So she already wanted to write a book about periods. She herself had teenage children, girls at the time and wanted to, you know, write this book. So I was um, I was very excited to do that, and it was a great success. It won the Australian um, an award in the Australian Book Industry Awards, and so our publisher, of course, was was you know keen to say, well, would you like to do another one? And look, we we played around with a lot of different ideas. From my perspective, having read so many thousands of questions from mm. writers to the magazine, I was very interested in writing a book about sex or sexuality because there were so many questions about that. Um, and the other was more broadly about puberty. And I, I was keen to sort of look at how we might target male boys as well, you know, boy male readers or boys, young men. Um, however, consent became uh, the topic that, that Yumi was very keen to mm. pursue. So that was our next book. And then Welcome to Your Boobs just seemed a logical follow-on from Welcome to Your Period. And then finally it was sort of like, Let's write a book about sex. Take a deep breath. You know, it's it's um, it's a big topic. Mm. It's it's potentially controversial. We I, I interviewed dozens of experts, researchers, educators, sexologists, and I interviewed a lot of young people. Yumi did as well. We used um, a lot of the material that had come in over the years from the magazine. So I feel like it was very very well informed by voices from the past and from now and real experts in the field. And, uh, you know, I, I do feel very proud of that piece of work. But I've really, you know, I enjoy writing. I guess I've written all my life, at least for the magazine <laughs> column. I do academic writing. So it's it's a challenge and a joy to really write um, these books for young people. Mm. I mean, they're, they're really interesting topics because, on the one hand, you know, people are, you know, people might say, "Well, you, you're talking on things like consent and sex, which would be more controversial, controversial to some." While others, like periods and talking about your boobs, that that those are mm. fairly more um, biological issues, right? I guess from the perspective of a parent as well and a teacher, you know. How how do you decide what is appropriate and what might be too much to talk about with young mm. people, you know, yeah. because it, is there a clear line to be drawn? I think that it's you're, you're absolutely right. And in writing uh, certainly the book about sex, it was very much making sure that we really listened to a, what young people had been asking or said that they would like to see in a book like this, and then B, we made sure that we also spoke to people who who were involved in research, who were involved in sex education, and we also spoke to parents. Now, that's all very selective because, mm. you know, it's just whoever will agree to talk to you, but nevertheless, I think we we were, I would, you know, I, we were fairly pretty satisfied that we Yes, there were some areas that were um, a little bit more controversial, but these that section of the book was absolutely taken from real questions. Mm. That none of that was none of that was made up. 
um, some of the other sections like where do where do we hear messages from the universe around us about sex that comes from research um, that comes from a lot of different researchers over the years who have studied the influences um, of knowledge and behavior on adolescents the sections about diversity again come from research comes from people with lived experience consulting with certain groups of people um, so really I took my cues about the content from my career working mm. with young people and, and exploring and, and, you know, studying this field. Um, but, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're, in terms of is it suitable and what should parents do, our advice has always been with all of the books, parents should buy the book and then decide. <laughs> um, if the child is young, you know, mm. I think once you turn 15, 16, sometimes even 14, you know, you, you you may or may not be interested in reading books at all or you may um, enjoy going to bookshops and, you know, finding these books for yourself. But I think younger adolescents, and I am a parent of four mm. now adult children, and I would reflect back on, well, at what age would I have allowed my child to read this book? I would have wanted to vet these books mm. um, when they were in primary school, early high school, by the time they get to middle high school, I feel like they know it all anyway, especially now. I don't know about Malaysia, but here in Australia, you know, the average age of where they're accessing online pornography now is as young as 11 in boys mm. and 13 in girls. This is that when 50% of 11 or 13-year-olds have seen online pornography. That really worries me. You know, I want information that counters some of the messages they're going to get in viewing online pornography so I think that's also probably informed you know before the internet before the availability of of so much of this information and and the things that young people might see um I might have revised that age but I feel now look if if this many young people and adolescents are now accessing pornography at such a young age well the book's pretty mild and pretty tame compared to that. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We speak about the online world. I mean, everything is, is at the tip of their fingertips, right? I mean, and sometimes even though, I mean, we've heard of cases, even though restrictions are put in, there are ways that information do slip through. So it's better to talk about these things with your children um, than not. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's if anything, you know, the, the books are almost there as an aid for parents mm. to help answer their questions. Um, mm. the, you know, the questions I've been asked over the years by parents, well, how young should I start talking about it? And there's lots of lots of really good resources out there about how to talk to even your young child, not about sex, but about broadly, you know, what sex is and our bodies and, you know, the body belongs to you and not letting people touch your body. And so it's kind of safety messages. Mm. And then as they grow up, we talk about how your body changes and how your feelings change. And so age appropriate information. And, you know, with these books, um, I think it because puberty and adolescence is such a variable, development is so variable, there will be some children that start going through puberty, you know, eight, nine, ten. So for them, the book may or may not be more suitable at younger adolescents. For those who are a bit slower to develop, um, it may not be suitable till they almost finish school, you know. So I think parents have to make that call. And also, uh, until they're of an age where they, you know, it's it's going to be fine, I think. Mm. Um, 
for, for most of your middle school adolescents to read these books. It's, it's just information, just explains things to them. So I think that we have really encouraged parents to have a look through the books. It can help them discuss some of these tricky topics mm. as well, I think. Mm. Um, as a takeaway message, Melissa, what, what would you say to parents on making sure that they keep these communication channels open, that they have safe spaces for their children to ask about things like yeah. their sexual health and sexuality? Yeah. I always think that it's important for us as parents and adults to take a few moments to, you know, think about our own comfort zone. What is it if we imagine having a conversation with our child? What is it that goes, oh, my goodness, I don't think I can do this? Or, you know, what fear does it evoke in us? What is our own level of comfort? Because until we're honest with ourselves, like I really don't want to have this conversation with my child or I really don't know how to have this conversation, I'm filled with dread. Or some parents will say, no, I think it's really good, I'm, I'd like to do it, I'm just not quite sure how. I think we need to be comfortable or at least honest about our own comfort zone. And then it is sometimes taking some deep breaths and saying more of a listening to our children than actually coming out with all this information. So let's say our child is in high school and they've been through puberty mm -hmm. and we don't really know much about what's going on in their lives around romance and dating and things. So I would say to parents, it's good to have a third, what I call a third person approach. Ask about the kids in your year in school. Are people starting to date yet? Like, how does it work these days? You know, do people date online? Like, how do you, how do, you know, kind of put it out there, make it external, and then you can bring it in a bit more. I give these same tips to doctors, by the way, and also to <laughs> teachers. You know, I think communication around difficult and awkward subjects where we're not quite sure <clears throat> are good using that indirect approach. So that's one way of doing it. Some parents are much much more comfortable just going straight to the point, mm -hmm. you know. You know, so, so who do you like today? Like, who do you like <laughs> this week? Or who do you like at the moment? Or, you know, um, who's that? who's that person I saw you with uh, when I went to pick you up? You know, is that someone you you like or you got a crush on them? Some parents are comfortable to do that, um, whereas it, it can be sometimes a more general approach. I also say there are lots of cues out there in the world, so streaming shows, TV shows, advertisements, magazine pictures, news stories, books, um, lessons in class. Use those as hooks to have conversations. So, oh, you know, if you're watching TV together and even if there's an ad or a scene in a in a film or something, say, um, oh, what did you think about that? Mm. Uh, or that, you know, I, or, or even make a joke about it, you know. Oh, I don't know if you're old enough to see that going on, you know. Do you learn about this stuff at school? So I think we can use lots of cues out there in the world to help us start those conversations. And then I think it's really important for parents to communicate to their children that you would like them to come to you mm -hmm. if they have any questions. But I also say to parents, it does take a village. And I did this with my own children. I was always hoping they would come to me if they had any problems, whether it was relationships, friendships, schoolwork, stress, whatever it might be. But 
as parents, we have to admit that maybe we're not going to be the person they feel most comfortable sharing something a bit personal. So I will say, let's let's talk about your your circle, your safety net, your your circle of safe people. Um, who would you go to? And I ask this of my patients as well. You know, if you were really in a difficult spot mm-hmm. or really stressed about something, do you talk to your mum or your dad? Do you talk to a teacher? Do you talk to a grandparent? I have that same. I had that same conversation with my children. And let's have a kind of list of safe people that you would go to. And they have to be adults. Mm. Um, obviously, friends are important, but, uh, you know, we, we want our children to have, to know that we give them permission as well. Um, look, I'd really like you to talk to me if you're thinking about sex, but if you really feel you can't, you know, would you go to Dr. So-and-so? Mm. Would you go to your auntie or your uncle? Um let, let's have a hypothetical conversation about that. We want our children to have human resources around them to help them grow up safely, I think. Mm. All right. And on that note, thank you so much for uh, this conversation today, Melissa. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking to Dr. Melissa Kang, Associate Professor in the Specialty of General Practice at the University of Sydney. She also has a special interest in adolescent and young adult health and sexual health, um, and hence our topic today on the importance of comprehensive sexual education among young people. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcasts on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.